then back to John the Baptist, and uh, then to Mary again. And then we have John the Baptist again. So it goes back and forth between those two. So we're telling the Christmas story, um, and this, this evening, the story of the birth of Christ. In Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking in verse 26 through verse 38. <clears throat> and let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. These are the words of God. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. And O Lord, as we open the word tonight, I pray that uh, there would be a true desire on our part to know what you are saying here, what you're revealing about yourself and your will in this passage. And I pray that now we, having seen what you're saying in the word, uh, would take great joy and delight in receiving it and dwelling on it, meditating on it. I pray that your word would dwell richly in us tonight, that we would be instructed and taught, and that we would love you and delight ourselves in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It was about probably 25 to 30 years after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and after he ascended to heaven that the Apostle Paul traveled back to Jerusalem. It was uh, a vow that he had made that took him back to Jerusalem. And while he was there, an accusation was made against him, false church, claimed that he had taken a Gentile into the temple proper, beyond the court of the Gentiles. Now, you might remember that uh, around the temple proper were big signs posted that no Gentile was to cross beyond this point, and that if you did, you would be responsible for your own death. And so the Jews policed that very carefully. And Paul, because of his ministry, remember, everywhere that Paul went, he preached to the Jews first, 
and then to the Gentiles. But to the Jews, his message was an offense, but it was an even greater offense that he would seek Gentile converts and not only seek Gentile converts, but would not require them to become Jews beforehand or before they converted. So there was no, on Paul's part, there was no requirement, for instance, that they meet not Jewish ceremonial requirements in order to become a Christian. That made Christianity very offensive to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, for one thing. And for another thing, it made the Apostle Paul especially hated and despised to this day. Jews, religious Jews, despise the Apostle Paul. They have nothing good to say about him whatsoever. So Paul came into Jerusalem and he brought Gentiles with him. He had a whole um, caravan, a whole a band of men who were with him. And among them was Luke. Paul went into the temple to fulfill his vow. The, the people who had seen him walking around with Titus, who was an uncircumcised Gentile, accused him of taking Titus into the temple proper, and the mob turned loose on Paul. And had it not been for the timely intervention of the Roman garrison that was right there at the temple proper, Paul would have been torn to pieces by the mob. The Romans came in, rescued him from the Jews, but then to appease the Jews, they imprisoned Paul, and Paul was in prison for quite a while. He was in prison there in Jerusalem to begin with, but then Paul's nephew, you might remember, uh, discovered a, a plot to kill the Apostle Paul, and his nephew went to the leader of the Roman garrison and exposed the plot against Paul for his safety. They took a midnight ride and moved him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea, and there they kept him prisoner while he was in Caesarea. Of course, he was able to stand trial and preach the gospel before Festus and before Felix, and eventually before King Herod Agrippa, which was the grandson or great-grandson of Herod the Great. So there were a lot of eventful things that were happening. But the reason I'm telling you this is because during the time that Paul was in Jerusalem, <clears throat> Luke had the opportunity at that time to do a one-on-one -on -one interview with Mary, the mother of Jesus. She would have been somewhere around 70 years of age, perhaps a little bit older than 70 by this time, but no doubt was still alive, uh, as we understand it, was living in Jerusalem at that time. And so Luke, who was a historian and understood how to uh, document things, it's evident that Luke got his account of the birth of Christ from Mary. Luke's account of the birth of Christ is clearly, evidently, Mary's version of events. Because there are so many personal details that Mary provi provides for Luke. I'll just give you a couple of examples 
in verse 29 of Luke 1, Luke says, when she saw him, that is when Mary saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Luke was not making that up. He was not embellishing. He was not imagining how Mary might have responded to the angel. It's evident that Luke got that, Mary's emotional response, he got from the mouth of Mary herself. Luke 1, verse 38, And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Now again, remember that Mary is saying this to the, the angel Gabriel. There was not a cloud of witnesses in that room. There were no other witnesses. No one else heard what Mary said or what was exchanged between the angel Gabriel and Mary, except Mary herself. So Mary was able to relate to Luke her experience with the angel. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 19 also, uh, Luke says, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now that kind of personal note could only have come from Mary herself. And then in Luke 2 and verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Obviously, intimate discussion between Joseph and Mary, and Mary at this time relating what they were seeing at that time. So Luke was able to get a firsthand account of the, of the events surrounding the life the birth of Jesus Christ from Mary herself and relate that to us. Now that's a precious thing to us. Obviously this is all written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is sometimes where we get off because we think that the Holy Spirit simply dictated the words and Luke wrote them down like automatic writing or something like that. Uh, but that's not what was happening here. Luke is a historian. He does the research, he does the interviews, he writes the story for us, and as Peter says it, holy men of God, like Luke, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Luke is writing what he has found, summarizing it, recording it for us, and God is stamping it as the inspired word of God. This is a wonderful thing, but also, it, it connects us. This is the beauty of it. It connects us to the events when Jesus Christ was born. That's a beautiful thing. That's a treasure that we have and a reason why we can enjoy this time of year because we have the record of these things. Don't you think it's a wonderful thing that God didn't just say, I became a man, I entered the world, and I was born in Bethlehem. I mean, he could have been that, that um, succinct. He could have uh, just given us the bare facts. Obviously, the point of the Bible is not the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ opens up the story that is central to the Word of God, to the Bible, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself. But we need to know, we need to understand that the gospel, 
which was Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb, rising again the third day, ascending up to heaven 40 days later. That gospel came about because God entered our world through a virgin's womb. It's important that we know this. And God clearly wants us to know many of the details surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. When we read Luke's account of the birth of Christ, we find a lot of detail about the circumstances and the, the events that surrounded that birth. But we find very little detail about the birth of Jesus Christ himself. It is as if God pulls the curtain across the scene and veils it through understatement. In fact, the two accounts that speak of Christ's birth only mention his birth as a matter of fact. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, Matthew spends one verse on the birth of Jesus Christ. Now the ladies here who have given birth know that uh, the process of giving birth to a baby is worth a lot more than one verse. It takes a lot of effort to bring a baby into the world. Words like travail, travailing, uh, are appropriate words to describe the process of giving birth. But Matthew says, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So he merely mentions it in passing. As I said, he uses understatement to almost gloss over it, mention it as a matter of fact, because again, in the point, God is not making the point of Mary's travail. In fact, we can say that we don't know how long Mary was in labor. We don't know how long the process of was for her to give birth. Uh, my mother told me she was in labor for like 30 some hours uh, with me. You know, because as I say, good things. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, Luke gives us just two verses in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Luke gives more attention to what Mary did after the birth than to the actual birthing Process. Now, I say that to you. There are a couple reasons to say it. But one is, of course, obviously, the Bible is not focused on the labor and delivery at all. No, no mention made of the contractions. No mention made of uh, what, whether there was a midwife there to deliver the baby. Nothing said about any of that at all. We could assume that Joseph delivered the baby since... They were travelers, and since, as far as we know, they didn't have anyone there in Bethlehem, obviously the city is crowded because of the enrolling for the tax, and so there's no room for them in the end. They have to find a place in the stable, and so on. So we could, we could surmise some things, but we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But there's another thing that I should just mentioned to you, maybe it's a pet peeve of mine. I've never been a big fan of these uh, movie series about the life of Christ. 
All right. I've not watched The Chosen. I've seen clips of it. Um, I'm not a fan. Uh, I'm not a fan of making movies uh, and having actors portray Jesus Christ. No actor can do justice to the King of Glory. Period. So I don't want to see it. I don't want to. I don't want to be disappointed with what I see there. And I certainly don't want to think of Jesus that way at all. But I pointed out to you because <clears throat> uh, I have seen uh, videos, movies, where this kind of thing was reenacted. In fact, there used to be a live nativity set, and while you're waiting to go through the live nativity scene, they would play uh, movies about Christ, and we just happened to be in the auditorium at the time when Mary was giving birth. And they're doing it on the stage, and they, I mean, you know, they make a movie, it's got to be dramatic. It's got to be a crisis moment. She has to almost die right then. That's how it has to go, because you've got to embellish it. And I just want to remind you that the Bible doesn't say anything about it. That is not the central part of what the Bible is saying here. But rather, it reminds me of that uh, hymn, How Silently... How silently the wondrous gift is given. It's not done out in public. It's not done out in the open. We know that Christ was born. God, in fact, did the broadcasting before and after the birth of Jesus Christ. Before his birth, he broadcast through Zacharias and Elizabeth, who pointed to the coming of Christ, which at the time of the birth of John the Baptist was six months away because Mary would have been three months pregnant at that time. And then after his birth, oh, I mean, God, God did a lot to advertise. Like, you know, there was no YouTube, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no social media, and yet God was able to get the message out all over to blanket Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the hill country of Judea. All knew that Jesus Christ was born because the angels announced it and the shepherds announced it and the wise men appeared shortly thereafter and they announced it and there was no concealing it, no hiding it. As Jesus said, when he stood trial, these things were not done in a corner. These things were not concealed or kept secret. But the events that led up to his birth were not public. They were a thing done in secret. When Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was in the sixth month of her pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city of Galilee. God sent Gabriel to a virgin, not merely a young maiden, but a woman who had not known a man. The virgin's name was Mary. She, we could guess that she probably was between the ages of 14 and 17 years old, and yet not a silly little girl as the feminine in the story. Mary was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was, according to the Bible, of the house and lineage of David. 
Gabriel, the archangel, came to visit Mary and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Now we should take note of some of what is said right here. Assume, first of all, that when Mary related the story to Luke, she vividly recalled how she felt when the angel came to visit her. Luke 1, 29, and when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. A second time, Gabriel told her of God's special favor on her. Blessed art thou among women. So let me pause and make a few points here. We don't worship Mary. Mary is not elevated above all women. Gabriel did not say that she was elevated or magnified above all women. The Bible does not say that. God has, though, highly favored her. That's what Gabriel said. And that is the truth. She is highly favored, but she is not favored above all women. She is blessed among women, but not blessed above all women. It's important that we note this. When Gabriel had calmed her fears, he told her that she would miraculously conceive while remaining a virgin, that she would bring forth a son and would call his name Jesus. Gabriel went on to tell her that Jesus, her son, would be great. Now, Luke uses understatement a few times. You need to notice when he's using it, all right? He would be great, all right? That's, that is like the understatement of the millennium. That's the understatement of the entire Bible, that he would be great and that he would be called the son of the highest. In Luke 1, 32, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. <clears throat> now this is the glory of the the Christmas story, the story of the birth of our Savior. Mary is highly troubled by what she sees, fearful, amazed, and she believes the angel. She believes him. She didn't go through a period of doubt. She didn't go through a time of arguing with him or probing him to see if he was serious. She believed him. She didn't test him to see if he was serious. She believed him. By faith, Mary asked how, as a virgin, she would conceive. She didn't ask this because she didn't believe it, because it was ridiculous, insane, what the angel was saying. She asked it because she believed it and wanted to know how this would be. 
How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? It's possible that she wondered what she could have wondered. She might have wondered any number of things. But she asked that question. Gabriel then <clears throat> answered her question, told her that the Holy Ghost would come upon her and the power of the highest would overshadow her. Now the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, as I said this morning, is said in a supernatural sense, not in a sexual sense. The same word that is used here, uh, come upon thee, because that come upon thee can be interpreted, or people may take it to mean in a sexual sense. So let me point out to you the other couple places where that term is used. That Greek word is only used a few times in the New Testament. It's found, first of all, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 21 and 22. When a strong man armed the keep of this palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Now clearly when Luke tells, says that in Luke 11, he is not speaking uh, sexually. He is clearly speaking there in a powerful way. So we're talking about supernatural power here. Also, the Bible uses this same word in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. By the way, Luke is, Luke is unique. He's a, he's a physician. He's a doctor. He uses technical medical terms in what he's talking about. He uses a different set of terms. He has a Greek training training in Greek, so he knows uh, Greek language. He's more educated than others. So the language that he uses uh, is a little bit more precise and sophisticated. So in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that's the other place where this Greek word that's rendered here, shall come upon thee, is used in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 as well. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that shall come upon thee is being used in a supernatural sense there. So the Bible did not say, the angel did not tell Mary that God was going to have intercourse with her. That does not say that at all. The Bible emphasizes the fact that Mary conceived Jesus Christ while still a virgin and that she remained a virgin until after Jesus Christ was born. So the, God the Father did not lie carnally with Mary. God, in fact, overshadowed her. The angel said that the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. That's an interesting word as well. Overshadowed is a word that's used only a few times in the New Testament. <clears throat> the Bible uses the same word to describe the transfiguration when Peter suggested that they build three temples in the mountain. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, which of course was blasphemous, but it was blasphemous out of ignorance on Peter's part. 
Mark chapter 9 and verse 7 tells us that in response to Peter's suggestion, there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. So that overshadowing, again, is something that God does in a mighty sense, in a powerful sense, in a startling sense, but not in a sexual sense. Acts chapter 5, verse 15, also uses this same word. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. So the angel Gabriel is describing the way God would supernaturally and powerfully cause Mary to be with child by the Holy Ghost. God miraculously caused Mary to conceive while yet a virgin, and she remained a virgin until after the birth of Jesus Christ. Then the angel Gabriel told Mary, therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The angel then told Mary about Elizabeth and the good news of her pregnancy. Now, Elizabeth was in her second trimester at this time, and this bit of news was given by the angel to provide a kind of confirmation to Mary. Even though Mary didn't ask for confirmation, didn't doubt what the angel was saying, still God gave her confirmation that would be a comfort to her. In fact, we see here that uh, in Luke chapter 1, that Mary immediately went to Elizabeth uh, because it was a person that she could talk to about this. You can imagine uh, how desperately Mary would need someone to talk to at this time. It's interesting because what the Bible says there, Gabriel is describing all of this to Mary, telling Mary that her cousin Elizabeth is pregnant Mary knows her cousin is very old. And the angel says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Isn't it interesting? Because we use that uh, phrase quite often. But that phrase is given in relation to the pregnancy of an old, old woman. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Notice Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. A complete surrender, a sweet surrender to the Lord in that moment. Now we can assume that sometime shortly after Gabriel's announcement, the Virgin Mary did conceive. For, as the angel said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Then Mary joined her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of Judah. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Elizabeth counted herself blessed, verse 43, and whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And she then pronounced a blessing on Mary, who already had been blessed, had been pronounced blessed by the angel Gabriel. 
now is blessed by Elizabeth. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth speaks prophetically here. When Elizabeth had finished praising the Lord, Mary marked the story of all stories with the hymn of all hymns. Uh, there couldn't be in the word of God a more glorious hymn than this hymn of Mary's, which we call the Magnificent, the Magnificat. <laughs> the Magnificat, I think is how you pronounce it. The word is, it's the Latin word for magnify. And it comes from Mary's opening line to the hymn. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Notice that Mary did not magnify herself. We don't find anything in the Word of God that would encourage us to worship Mary, to pray to Mary, to approach God through Mary. No idea in Scripture that she is a co-redemptrix. No no. No picture of that in Scripture anywhere is to be found. The Bible never talks about her being a mediator for us whatsoever. Mariolatry is idolatry, and it is wicked. Mary magnified the Lord, or more precisely, she said her words, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. That's interesting too to point out because again there's this Mariolatry, this idea that Mary herself is a co-redemptrix with the Lord Jesus Christ, that Mary made a sacrifice by sacrificing her son Jesus, and that Jesus himself was also sacrificed for our sins so that they together, their their joint sacrifice is what paid for and atoned for our sin. Again, this is a heresy not to be found in the Word of God. It is an abominable doctrine. I want you to notice that when Mary praised the Lord, her hymn of praise said, again, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary was identifying Jesus as her own Savior, which clearly means she knew that she needed to have a Savior. She herself was not a Savior, but it was in need of a Savior. And so do we. Every one of us. We are all in the same boat as Mary. Mary had no idea of herself being sinless. She was a sinner, and this child, who she herself would give birth to, was the Savior that she needed. Mary praised the Lord, then, for this special favor that she should bring her own Savior, give birth to her own Savior, bring her Savior into the world. Now, this, this may sound, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing what God did, that a woman who needed salvation gave birth to the one to give her salvation. That's extraordinary. 
But it's not the most extraordinary thing in the story. The most extraordinary thing in the story is that the creator God would make himself into the thing he created. Let me say that's more extraordinary than Mary giving birth to her Savior, but it's still not the most extraordinary part of the story. The most extraordinary part of the story is that the creator God made himself the creature so that other creatures he had made would kill him. The creator killed by his creation so that he could redeem his lost creation. That's the amazing thing. And that marvel is the center of the gospel and the Christian story as well. Amen. <clears throat> so Mary praised the Lord for this special pray a favor on her. She recognized God's unique blessing on her. Luke 1 48, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. Now listen. We don't worship Mary. We don't acknowledge that she made a sacrifice, joint sacrifice with Jesus Christ that was sufficient or efficient for our salvation, our redemption. We do not acknowledge her as co-redemptrix. We do not acknowledge her as a mediator between us and God whatsoever. We, we deny all of that. We deny that Mary is blessed or favored above all women, that she is magnified above all women, that she is elevated above all women. We deny all of that. But we also acknowledge that all generations call Mary blessed. And Mary is highly favored. Blessed among women. Where Roman Catholic veneration of Mary has been too excessive, we don't correct their error by denying that Mary is blessed among women. Error is not best corrected uh, by overreaction, but by faithfulness. And Mary, in fact, spoke of God's faithfulness in verse 48 of his power in verse 49, of his holiness in verse 49, and of his mercy in verse 50. But she also recognized God's special favor on Israel in sending his son into the world. He hath hoped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Luke 1, 54, 55. Mary understood that this birth fulfilled God's covenant promises to Abraham and to his seed. Clearly then, Mary's faith here is not resting on an experience that she had with the angel Gabriel. Mary's confidence, Mary's faith is in the word of God. The visit from the angel lines up with what she understands from the Word of God already, and she believes the Word of God. 
She believed, in fact, what the angel said because she believed what God's word said. So not only was she a woman of faith, but she was a woman of the word. And we see that deep understanding of the word of God in the middle of this hymn, this Magnificat. Luke 1, verse 50. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. And that, my friend, is a deep and wonderful uh, understanding of the Lord our God. Mary knew firsthand the way God exalted them of low degree because he had regarded the low estate of his handmaid. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Now notice also the prophetic tone of Mary's psalm of praise. Her hymn takes on a militant tone. She speaks of scattering the proud in the imagination of their hearts, of putting down the mighty from their seats and exalting them of low degree. It's really something to think that this came out of the, the, the mouth of a virgin girl of Israel, probably just a teenager. It's pretty staggering to, to hear her speaking in these warlike terms. But it also is an example of the way women conquer in our world. You know, there's a popular uh, bumper sticker, and, and I'm trying to think exactly how it says, but um, well-behaved women rarely make history, they say, or something along those lines. Uh, my wife and I were taking a walk, and we saw, you know, one of those feminists, they had a big sign in their, in their yard that said, I'm a nasty woman, it said that. My wife was pausing and taking a picture of it. I think she wanted to use it for something. Uh, we didn't sit on her front porch while we're taking it. So she yelled at us, do you like it or dislike it? I decided in that moment I did not want to have a conversation with a nasty woman. If you're telling me you're a nasty woman, I'll pass. All right? I, I don't need to do that right now. But Mary actually shows us the way women make history. Mary shows us the way women conquer in the world. And that is by giving birth to conquerors. Ladies, it is a high calling to give birth to a son and to raise him up to have dominion in this world. That's what Mary saw. <clears throat> Someone said in one sense, of course, Jesus is the reason for the season, but in another fundamental sense, sin is the reason for the season. But I think it would be better to say that sin is the occasion, and Jesus came with the solution. And Mary saw that the babe she carried in her womb was the solution, the Savior for all mankind, including Mary herself. She would count his fingers and his toes and would change his diapers and would sing nursery rhymes to him and she would nurse him and she would help him take his first steps and she would fall at his feet 
and worship him. But she wouldn't fall at his feet and worship him the way idolatrous mothers sometimes worship their children. She would fall at his feet not because she had made an idol of him, but she would fall at his feet because she was a humble sinner worshiping her Savior. Now Luke tells us that Mary stayed with her cousin Elizabeth for three months. And right around the time of the birth of John the Baptist, she returned to Nazareth. And when she returned to Nazareth, we know that Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy. Naturally, Joseph was troubled by this news. He knew that he was not the father, as they had not yet come together. So the Bible tells us that Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And in this, God gives us some insight into the character of Joseph. <clears throat> First of all, he was a just man, which means he was not like any of the men of his day, especially the religious leaders who Jesus frequently referred to as white sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Joseph demonstrated that he was a just man, especially in his unwillingness to make a public example of Mary for what he saw as the sin of fornication. He thought she was guilty of it. Now, some might quibble with this, you know. Didn't the Old Testament law call for stoning in such a case? The answer is not necessarily. The Old Testament law called for stoning in cases of adultery. In cases of fornication, the woman's father had the authority to say whether she would marry the man or not. The Pharisees caught a woman in the very act of adultery, you remember, and dragged her to Jesus uh, to be stoned. Their hypocrisy was exposed in two ways in that story. Number one, that they caught the woman in the act of adultery but did not catch the man. And number two, and I believe that sexual immorality was rampant among the religious leaders in Israel at that time, and I believe that Jesus exposed it in John chapter 8. Because Jesus said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone, and they began one by one to slink away from that place. So I say that Joseph was a just man, number one, just in the sense he wasn't willing to make a public example of Mary, and number two, in the sense that he was not a hypocrite. He was not guilty of the crime, the charge that he was bringing against Mary or that he thought Mary had committed. Joseph was a, of a different caliber. He would not make a show of punishing Mary, nor would he overlook her indiscretion. Now, some time ago, again, I, I was in a place and they were playing another Hollywood version of the life of Jesus Christ. And they were at that story, the woman taken in adultery. And they <clears throat> brought her to Jesus. I'm watching this with interest. And they're gathering around. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was it? Was it that? No, it was not that. I'm, I'm 
and thinking different there. Um, it, was, it was Joseph, in fact. It was when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant. And they're dragging her out in the street to stone her. And they're demanding that Joseph throw the first stone. And Joseph is picking up the stones. Now, you know, I understand how creative license works, right? And sometimes you have to put things together. But that could not be more contrary to what the Bible describes here. There was no thought on Joseph's part of stoning Mary. Now, again, this is the greatest story ever told. There's no improving it with creative license or imagination. The Bible tells us that Joseph was minded to put her away privily. He thought that that's what he should do. It was a righteous intention, righteous in every way. And to prevent this from happening, an angel appeared to Joseph. Notice that God didn't send the angel with a rebuke because Joseph was so judgmental and unforgiving. God honored Joseph and revealed in a dream that Mary was with child of the Holy Ghost. He told Joseph that this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He told Joseph to name the baby Jesus and the angel explained the name, for he shall save his people from their sins. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. In simple faith, Joseph, like Mary, believed. And he demonstrated his faith by his works. He took Mary home with him. He did not know her until she had brought forth her son. And he gave the son the baby that God had told him to give him. He gave the son the name. I'm sorry, not the baby. He gave him the name that God told him to give him. All right, then we're back to Luke. Now, Luke relates birth to a decree of Caesar Augustus. Now, remember that Luke is a historian. So he sees, he's interested in what all is happening in the world at that time. And so Luke nails down the time of the birth of Christ to the time when Caesar Augustus uh, made this decree. It, it tells us a few things. One is that Mary and Joseph did not travel to Bethlehem because they knew the prophecies Herod the king offended the Roman emperor, Octavian, also called Caesar Augustus. Augustus ordered everyone in Herod's domain to return to their hometown so that he could number them and enroll them for a future tax. Since Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, he and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. Now, Luke here is recognizing God's sovereign hand that is guiding in all of this. Caesar Augustus was the greatest of the Caesars, ushered in a period, a long period of peace to Rome and the Roman Empire, brought the Roman Empire to its zenith, and at that time was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. 
So this is what God did. God moved the most powerful man in the world so that he would move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. But I think that there's more to it than that. There have been other powerful men in the world. But there's something unique about Caesar Augustus that you should know. He took the name Caesar Augustus on himself. He called himself that. Augustus, which by the way our month August comes from, Augustus means worthy of reverence and worship. Now if you think that that's just kind of a, an outlier here, his birth name, Octavius, uh, was, his birth name was Octavius. Augustus was his ruling title. Again, the title that he took for himself. Octavius was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Before Julius Caesar was murdered, he had a coin made in honor of himself and Octavius. The coin showed the two-headed god Janus with Julius on one side and Octavius on the other, and this inscription, the divine Caesar and the Son of God. An Egyptian inscription called Octavius, a marvelous star shining with the brilliance of the great heavenly Savior. A few years before the birth of, well, I'm sorry, years after the birth of Christ, a strange star appeared in the sky, and in response, Octavius commanded a 12-day Advent celebration as a ceremonial embrace of Virgil's prophecy, which proclaimed the turning point of the ages has come. So Octavius is not just uh, a king with an inflated ego. He sees himself as the savior of the world. So it's important to note that what God was doing was saying, Caesar, you're a little God. I'm going to use you. You're going to be my servant. You're going to be my messenger boy to send Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. It's interesting because after the death of Christ, after his ascension to heaven, the Roman Empire hated Christians, found them such a scourge and such a pest that they essentially destroyed themselves trying to destroy Christians. I wonder if anyone ever pointed out to them that, oh yeah, by the way, while you're killing all of us, you should know that it was Caesar Augustus who sent uh, Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so Jesus could be born. It is one of the great ironies of the Word of God. <clears throat> this matters because a greater than Caesar had arrived. God had absolute control over the most powerful of men. Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem courtesy of Caesar Augustus. Upon their arrival, Joseph found the con or the inn overflowing. 
Now, the Middle Eastern con was nothing like our modern motels. It was essentially a fort. There was no front desk, no private rooms, no private bathrooms or queen-sized beds, undersized queen-sized beds. Bethlehem's Inn would have been like a fort with four walls surrounding an open courtyard, no roof, really no rooms. The Bible says there was no room for them. It doesn't say there were no rooms for them in the end. They didn't really have rooms there. There would have been a well at the middle. The fort was built to protect the, the well, and people would go in there to shelter themselves, especially for protection from thieves that commonly ran the roads at night in that time. The courtyard on this night must have been very crowded with people and animals. Vendors selling bread, people drawing water from the well, probably noisy, probably find a, hard to find a place to lay down. Since there was no room in the end, in, in the end, most travelers would just spread their blankets along the road. That's people were used to that. We're not. You can't imagine living like that, but they did. But Joseph had a pregnant wife, great with child. So he looked for some shelter. He found both shelter and privacy at the stable, which probably was a cave. And there, Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. The Bible doesn't tell us what time of day it was when Christ was born. But of course, we would all imagine that it was night. I think there are three good reasons to say that it was at night. First of all, the inn was overcrowded. That probably wouldn't have happened in the daytime. It probably would have been towards dusk. Uh, people traveled during daylight hours. Secondly, we know that the angels announced the birth of Jesus at night while shepherds were watching their flocks. Probably they announced it right after Jesus was born. And thirdly, and maybe the best argument of all, I said all the ladies will tell you that babies like to be born at night. They, you know, if they, they took a poll, I think, among babies being born, and babies voted almost unanimously for the hours between midnight and three in the morning, somewhere in there. But of course, the point is that the birth of Jesus touched off a great celebration in the heavens. A star appeared in the east, sages or wise men saw the star and knew that a new kind of king was born. And the sky over Jerusalem was filled with the glory of God as the angels announced that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The God of all the ages was born on that night. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Creator made Himself into what He had created. The infinite God became a finite creature. He that 